Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this message, Billy Humphrey gives an overview of the Song of Solomon, teaching on how it exhibits God's emotions toward us. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. So uh, tonight we'll get on part two of our series. The series is entitled Encountering Jesus in Song of Solomon. Encountering Jesus in Song of Solomon. Now, if you weren't here last week and you're like, bro, I don't even know anything about Song of Solomon. Why are we talking about that? Just listen to last week and it will get you all the way up to speed. I gave eight reasons, critical reasons, essential reasons why. We all need to study Song of Solomon. Three of them had a specific arrow just for dudes. It's for you. Tonight, I am endeavoring to give you, I'm going to endeavor to give you an overview of all eight chapters of Song of Solomon. All right, so if you pray and listen really well, maybe I can do that. But I'm going to put it on you because if I don't get there, it's just going to be y'all's fault somehow. No, I won't do it. I won't put it on y'all. All right, so here we go. Let's pray. Let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to speak to us. And, um, man, this table is like going to just test me. Have y'all seen this? How would, how, would, how would that treat you? Just I'm wondering. Any, any like, OCD kind of people? Yeah, no, let's not even fix it. Let's just, oh, look at my wife. Look at my wife. Look at my wife. That was awesome. She forfeited her notes just so much for, for my table. That's my boo thing right there. That's it. That's it. That's why we're in Song of Solomon tonight, baby. All right. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for how you move and refresh and meet us. And even Song of Solomon chapter 2, where it says, sustain us refresh us because we're lovesick. We need that even tonight. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking, be the teacher. Instruct our hearts. Lord, help me to speak as an oracle. Hold my hand tonight. Jesus, manifest yourself. Manifest yourself. Do everything you want to do. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Okay, so... Uh, as we're getting into this, I want to give you four keys to understanding Song of Solomon. Four keys to understanding. Before we get into the overview of it, basically four things you really need to have on the front of your mind as you're looking at the book of Song of Solomon, as you're considering it. All right, so the first one is this. Song of Solomon is an allegory. It is an allegory. And what that means is this, that Song of Solomon is written as a story that is figurative of literal truths. So there's figurative details that are are speaking to us literal truths. And as we talked about last week, it's the story of Jesus, who is the bridegroom, and his bride, us, the church. And so we see that story played out in the story of this maiden and this beloved, this, this bridegroom. And so here's our thing. 
The Bible uses allegory. In fact, there's many times there's symbolism that speaks of literal truths. The key when you're looking at allegory or metaphors or similes or anything like that in the scripture is you don't build doctrine on allegory, okay? You build doctrine on the straightforward passages that are literal. Allegory, what it does is it draws out details that maybe you didn't, you didn't quite understand just reading it straightforward. It gives example. And so it makes it, it, makes it clearer, richer, fuller. So like uh, think of movies. Can you think of any movies that are modern-day like allegories? Lord of the Rings would be an allegory. Exactly. Chronicles of Narnia is an allegory. Exactly. So you get the picture like, you know, Aslan, he's a picture of Jesus, right? The witch, he's a picture of the devil. So this is how it works in Song of Solomon. Um, it's, it's an allegory. Now, here's the thing. This has been the way that Song of Solomon has been understood for thousands and thousands of years. Because I always get this question. People go, well, you're, you're preaching it allegorically, but it's, it's about, you know, the marriage ministry. It's about husbands and wives. It's about, you know, for the women's class. It's a literal story or whatever. And, and here's the thing. Thousands of years, 1,900 years of church history, all the way until the last century, the primary, in fact, the only way the Song of Solomon was understood was as an allegory. It's only been within the last hundred years that more recent commentators have said, so, oh, no, 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 it's literal. It's a straightforward story. But for years and years and years and years, commentators, Bible teachers, even the rabbis before Christ, they all understood Song of Solomon as an allegory. And so it's uh, way more, I would say, true to the history of the Scripture, the history of the church, to think of it firstly as an allegory. And the Bible isn't, the Bible isn't against allegories. The Bible uses allegories. There's many types and shadows and allegories in the Scripture in a variety of ways. When you get the notes, I'll post them in the group me. When you get the notes, I list out four or five of those. And so the key for us is to recognize that when we're looking at the Song of Solomon, we're recognizing this is an allegory. It speaks about Jesus and the church and the power of it is when we don't make it about the church broad, but we make it specific to us as members of the bride, as part of the bride, okay? When you recognize this is Jesus speaking to you of the way he thinks and feels about you, that's when this thing begins to ignite and have power on your soul. And so um, that would be the first thing to understand about Song of Solomon. All right, second. The Song of Solomon is God's emotions written in poetry. It's God's emotions written in poetry. God is immensely creative and intensely emotional. Now, for some people, they don't kind of think of God that way. Some people think of God as stoic. They think of him as emotionless. Or if they ascribe any emotions to him, they think that God is uh, mostly angry or frustrated. They don't think of him as emotional with lots of emotion. And most of them think of him as negative. 
But here's the thing. God is not mostly negative in his emotions. He's not mostly angry. He's not mostly frustrated. He's mostly joyful, and he's mostly full of pleasure. Okay? The scripture says this. In his presence is fullness of joy, right? So if fullness of joy is in his presence, where is that joy coming from? Him. It's coming off of him. He's mostly joyful. Now, you may know that. If I gave you a test, you might say, yeah, I think God is mostly joyful. Or maybe up to this moment, you thought he's mostly angry and ready to smash you. But here's the thing. If you know it up here, but you don't know it in here, that disconnect will leave you, I mean, it will leave you wallowing before God when he's inviting you with joy. He is mostly joyful. He's mostly pleased. He's not mostly angry and frustrated. There's no way the area around him could be full of pleasure and joy if he was mostly crabby and angry. Am I making sense? And so this song, it's his emotions written in poetry. Just think about that for a minute, that God, who is the creator, that he would write poetry. And even this, that he would write poetry that expresses his emotions, and not just about anything, but about you. That takes what Song of Solomon is, and man, it puts it in a category that's like, oh man, I need to understand this. Now, like, if you are a Bible studier, you love getting in the scriptures, you love going deep, and you look at like, okay, Romans. I would say Romans explains our salvation from a legal standpoint, we get the legal explanation of what it means to be justified, what it means to be sanctified. We get it from a legal standpoint. In fact, Paul uses legal terminology in there. Justification itself is something that was used in a court of law. Song of Solomon, on the other hand, it wouldn't be a legal exp explanation of our salvation. It would be God's emotional explanation. Now, if all you ever do is relate to God via the legal explanation of your relationship with him, you will look at him as if he's a judge, and you will think about whether or not you're following him in terms of, am I in or am I out? Did I keep the rules or did I break them? It will actually have a legalistic bent on you, even though Paul emphasizes in Romans grace. I've met so many people, they don't have any understanding of God's emotions and his heart and his delight in them. They know the Bible verses, but their whole relationship with God is a legalistic relationship on the basis of in or out, do or don't, yes or no, right or wrong. And they walk around mostly in shame, not knowing God's heart of compassion and delight and desire. So I would say this, understand you need to understand deeply the legal relationship in our salvation. You need to understand that. But relate to God on the basis of his emotional explanation. Did you hear what I just said? Understand the legal piece, but relate to him on the basis of his emotional explanation. And so that's what we get in Song of Solomon he has written us poetry. It's beautiful. It's creative. 
it's it's rich and it expresses his heart. Um, it expresses everything he's thinking and feeling. And, and less and if you have a problem thinking about God as emotional, let me ask you this: Are people emotional? Are people emotional? Whose image and likeness are we made in? We're made in his image and likeness. It wasn't a trick question. She's like, his? And thus, the emotional, that, that, that whole spectrum of emotion that you carry, that's just a little bit of a signpost of what God is really, really like. Does that make sense? You guys in here tonight? Give me something. All right. All right, thirdly, when you're thinking about Song of Solomon, you need to capture it and understand it as the prof- it's a prophetic book. You have to catch the prophetic nature of this, of this book. And I, I mentioned this last week as one of the, one of the things you have, to, you have to understand, but I want you to catch this idea. Jesus is returning as a bridegroom king. He's coming to this planet as a bridegroom king. The, the uh, generation in which the Lord returns, there will be a greater revelation of who he is as a bridegroom king than any other generation because that generation of people will be getting ready to receive him as the bridegroom king. And so Song of Solomon is this book that I think is the greatest preparatory book when it comes to uh, solidifying your identity as the bride catching who you are as the bride and in, in readying yourself for who he is as the bridegroom king. So you're, you're not going to, sh- he's not going to return and you're going, you know, that whole bridal thing. I really wasn't into that. Not really. I don't really want to do a wedding with you. Like your preference on whether you like bridegroom, bride language, or that example, or if that, you're like, that's not my vibe, that, that ain't the vibe, you know, like, I mean, if that's your mentality, th- that's r- really just not going to work, because he's a bridegroom, and he's coming back for a bride, and so I said it a little bit last week, but dudes, you just got to go ahead and swallow it, you're his woman, Just swallow that on down, bro. Just choke it on down. All the ladies, you are sons of God. Praise God. So we just, our identity, this is not gender, we're not talking about gender tonight. This is about our eternal identity and relationship with God. I will do a gender talk in a day ahead. So here's the thing. In the generation in which the Lord returns, there is going to be a mounting curiosity for understanding what it means to be the bride of Christ, to know him as a bridegroom, and, and to be the bride. There's going to be a, an exponentially mounting desire and longing for that, for that understanding. Um, Alicia posted something on my IG the other day, just something about Song of Solomon. Oh, it was the five reasons why you need to study it. And the post gets like, I don't know, 800, 900 likes just out of the gate. And the thing about it is th- that same post two decades ago would have been like, wah, wah. <laughs> like people are like, what? Song of Solomon? Eh. But now I'm watching, and it continues to be this way. The more I talk about Song of Solomon, and many others are talking about Song of Solomon, but the more that preachers talk about it, the more I talk about 
I'm watching the interest continue to just rise and rise and rise and rise. That to me is a sign that we're living in a time where Jesus is trying to emphasize this truth to us because we're not coming to that curiosity on our own. We're coming to that because the Lord is touching our hearts about it. Last week, this is a perfect example. Last week, I was describing, okay, we're going to start a new series. And I kind of built it up just a little bit. And I said, and so I was going to do Father Heart, but no, we're going to do Song of Solomon. And when I said it, you guys cheered. That's so weird. Either y'all are really weird people. We'll just go ahead and, okay, we know y'all are really weird people. But I do think it's a sign of Holy Spirit moving on hearts, readying us to, uh, to understand Jesus' identity as a bridegroom and our identity as his beloved bride. And so that is a critical, critical thought. Understanding the prophetic significance of the Song of Solomon is critical as you're leaning into it. I want to say this. If you are an artist in any way, I mean a painter, a dancer, a sculptor, a string art person, I don't know, musician, songwriter, blogger, writer, a yodeler, whatever you are, art person, the songs, the sounds, the images of Song of Solomon, we haven't even scratched the surface on it yet. Holy Spirit is about to fill the earth with anthems. He's about to fill the earth with imagery. He's about to fill the earth with understanding. This isn't going to be the little side Bible study, and though that was a weird picture, some bride in an army boot thing. This is going to be something that fills the earth with anthems, and the songs of the church at the end of the age are going to be the songs of the bride, okay? We're, we've seen an uptick in the last 10, 20 years, but we haven't seen anything yet. We are about to see in, uh, so many images, so much art, and so many songs here, so many songs that are going to be the songs of a lovesick bride. Because hey, let me tell you something, Isaiah 42 says this, that Jesus is going to come back to the sound of singing. It says, like a warrior He's going to hear the new song, and he is going to cry aloud, and he is going to return with fire and power. And I just imagine the Son of God there at the right hand of the Father, and the songs begin to rise from the earth. There's songs right now rising. I remember I was preaching at Upper Room, and I prophesied to them. I said, you're going to sing the songs of the bride. And I turned around to Alyssa Smith. I said, you're going to sing the songs of the bride. God's going to give you songs to sing. They're going to be anthems. They're going to cover the earth. I had no idea that they had, we're getting ready. They had just written it. It was right there. They were in production on we're getting ready. And they released it like within the next month or two. And that song went all over. We're getting ready for the marriage of the lamb is the song. But I'm telling you, so I just imagine Jesus, here's these songs. We're getting ready. We're getting ready. We're getting ready for you. Um, you know, how's it go? We're going to shout the whole He's faithful. He's the best of hope. We're getting ready. The marriage of the Lamb. So, <laughs> but the point is, hey, I know you're stunned by my abilities. Hip here. Just receive it. Uh, but the point is, Jesus hears that. He's not like, y'all have got some good worship songs down there. That's cool. I'll come back when I, you know, some other time. No, he's up there going, he, I, he's hearing the songs. 
We're saying we're getting ready for you, bridegroom king. We're getting ready for you. And I just imagine Jesus, he looks over at the father, he goes, hey, I want to go be with her. I want to go be with my bride. I'm ready. They're ready. They're getting ready. I want to answer that. He goes, not yet, son. Not, not yet. And even Jesus in his earthly ministry said the father knows the days and the hour. Not, not I, but the father does. But there's a moment coming where anthems are going to be sung. They're going to cover the earth. The songs of the bride are going to cover the globe. And when I mean cover, cover the globe, they will cover the globe. I remember I was in an underground house church in China. And I am in there. And they are singing uh, the Corey Asbury song, the Reckless Love. They're singing Corey's song. And, uh, and so I film it. And I send it to Corey. And I send it to um, uh, the keyboard guy. No, not John Thurlow. No. Huh? No, 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 not Rick Pino, gosh, no, no, no. Corey's guy that plays keyboards with him is like actually Caleb Culver. Dang. Caleb is actually the one that wrote most of the songs. So Caleb and Corey send it to him. I go, hey, I'm in an underground church in China, and they're singing Reckless Love. When songs go around the earth, they go around the earth. I've been with underground church in Iran. They're singing the anthems that we're singing here. It's wild. I've been in China. They're singing the anthems. Right now with technology, you know, they use, the, they use VPNs. They get on YouTube. They watch all the songs. And then they just go ahead and start singing them themselves. But the songs are going to cover the globe. Jesus is going to hear the songs of the bride. And I'm telling you, the nations will be singing Jesus back to the planet. You have to understand the prophetic significance of this song. It is the song of all songs. And when the worship leaders and the artists and the dancers and the sculptors and the everybody begins to explode this song of, across every corner of the planet, the Son of God, at one point, he's going to look at the Father. He's going to say, Father, now. And the Father's going to say, yes. And Isaiah 42 says he's going to come back like a man of war to vindicate his bride. So you need to catch the prophetic significance of this book. This isn't just for, like, you know, the, the ladies' Bible study or something, okay? Yes, it is for that, but it's for so much more than that. The other thing I would say is this, in the prophetic, on the prophetic significance point, is in the generation which the Lord returns, uh, Revelation 9.21, it describes four key sins that are going to fill the earth, and one of them is sexual immorality. Well, we're already seeing a massive, crazy, crazy uptick of sexual immorality and all sorts of things. Song of Solomon answers every bit of sexual brokenness this planet has. Song of Solomon answers it. It is the song of purity and love in the context of marital relationships. It is the expression of God's poetic heart as it relates to his desire between man and woman. There is so much healing in Song of Solomon. The emotional and the sexual brokenness of this generation it looks crazy. It looks out of control. Everybody's on meds. Everything's all messed up. Everything's backwards. All the gender, all that stuff. It, none, none of that is, to, is, is even close to hard compared to that power of healing that God can release and will release through Song of Solomon. I, and I say that with boldness. 
You need healing in your emotions. Find the emotions of God for you in Song of Solomon. It will shift your emotional makeup. It will change your emotional makeup. You need healing because of sexual brokenness. Find the burning eyes of the bridegroom for you, and a purity of holy love will fill your soul and heal you. I, I mean, it has the power to do that. I remember when I first got a hold of Song of Solomon, and I, I was talking to a man that I've been in a relationship for 15 years uh, in ministry, he's uh, a pastor leader, and, and he... he I remember I came back, and we were, I'd been in Kansas City for a while, and I came back. I was teaching Song of Solomon, an embassy message. In fact, I took a whole year. When I first planted uh, International House of Prayer Atlanta, when I first planted the, sort of the root system of Gate City, I, uh, I preached an entire year on intimacy, intimacy with Jesus. I, I didn't preach for 52 weeks, intimacy with Jesus. And, um, and I remember it was shortly after that, this leader, pastor, he calls me. He goes, hey, listen. I want to ask you a question. And I go, yeah. He goes, something happened to you, and I need to understand it. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I have met with a million people in counseling and talked through all sorts of things with people. And He goes, one thing you cannot change about a person, you cannot change their personality. It is what it is. Their personality is their personality. He goes, you know, they, they might be a little nicer, a little this or that. Or, he goes, but their personality is their personality. He goes, I would, he goes, I would have said that 100% of the time until I've watched you the last two years. I go, what, what do you mean? He goes, your personality has changed. He goes, you've gotten softer. You've gotten more tender. Your emotional whole makeup is different. He goes, what happened to you? And I, I mean, I was like blown away from getting this phone call. This is, this is a man, very successful ministry. He goes, what happened to you? I said, I found out God loves me through the Song of Solomon. He goes, and he what he said. He goes, I knew it. He goes, how do I get that? I said, you got a year to go sit in a prayer room and bake like a biscuit in an oven? Like, can you do that? Because <laughs> I sat there and baked under the heat lamp of his affections for an entire year, just reading and, and meditating and studying his thoughts and his feelings for me. Some of you are sitting in here, you guys, your, your emotions are so disheveled and, and just, they're just a wreck. And you have a hard time slowing yourself down enough to even just quiet yourself. Like tonight was even challenging. Though the whole room is coming under peace, it's like so hard because your, your soul is such a wreck. Here's what, you, here's what we've got to get you to do. We've got to get you to dial down and dial into God's affections for you. To where his affections and his opinion of you is the one that, it's the only one that matters. That you, it's the only voice you care about. I remember I had a pastor, several thousand member church in uh, Alabama. He sits in my office. This is, and this is back when we were on Collins Hill. We had three, four hundred people came to our church came to the house of prayer, and he said, he sits there with me, and he goes, you're so at ease. I go, me? I go, I'm, I'm full of zeal. Like, what are you talking about? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm hyper. He goes, no, no, no. There's something about your soul. You're just so at ease. He goes, it's like you just carry an unusual confidence. I go, well, 
He goes, what is that? I go, well, I think God loves me. And that kind of settles everything. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I knew it. Yeah, that's what, it, that's what I need. And, and, and here's what I would just say to you. All the accolades, all the, all the successes, all the whatevers that people are after, none of it matters if you don't know that God loves you. It just doesn't matter. Straight A's and anxious as can be. Or D's get degrees, but so confident in the love of God. No, I don't, don't, don't get D's. <laughs> they don't really get degrees, do they? Actually, you need C's, don't you? C's get degrees. But that's not the point. The point isn't to fail. The point is that you can be confident in love, and it doesn't matter, you know, how well you perform. It changes your emotions. It changes your makeup. And the answer for the brokenness in this generation is the revelation of God's affections in Song of Solomon. Amen. All right, and then the last one is this, to understand Song of Solomon. Again, those first three, I'll just give them to you again. It's an allegory. It's God's poetry written. It's his emotional poetry written for us in a song. It's prophetically significant. And then the last thing you've got to understand about Song of Solomon is you're supposed to experience it as a prayer guide. It's written not just so you'll know all the verses and know all the storyline and all that stuff. It's written so that you'll take it and turn it back into language that you talk to God with. That's why he gave you the language of his emotions so you could share those interactions, those emotional interactions with him. So it starts off, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now that is a representative, and I'll, and I'll talk about the allegorical and figurative language in, in the prior next session. But it's the, the, what comes out of the mouth is words. So it's the kisses of his word. So I will pray. I'll take that phrase. I'm telling you how to make it into a prayer guide. I have maybe a dozen of these that I'll pray back to him, but I'll just, I'll go, I'll just I'll say that to him. I'll say, God. Kiss my heart with the kisses of your word. Kiss my heart with your word, the revelation of your word. Your love, the kisses of your love. I want my heart to be kissed with the kisses of your love. And I will, I will make that my private prayer. And when this thing gets into your prayer life, that's when you begin to access the power that changes your emotions, okay? It's not just the moment that you sort of get revelation and you hear somebody teaching it. It's when it turns into your own language. And now you are weaponized to get into a, a vein of intimacy with God that you never would have got into before. And you take that poetry that God wrote for you, that expresses his heart for you, you take that poetry and you say it back to him. And man, you start hitting a zone with God that is like, it's like nothing else. I know, Song of Solomon 8.6. Put your seal of fire on my heart. Seal my heart, Jesus, with fire. I, man, I pray that. Seal me with your fire. 
I mean, so many, sustain me, refresh me. I started tonight's message, sustain me, refresh me. I, I just prayed those little phrases back to him. Guys, get this thing into your prayer life. Get the phrases from it into your prayer life. It will transform you. It will change your emotions. All right. In your notes, I give you several key revelations. I give you a snapshot of the song. I give you the theme of the song. I give you central concepts of the song. I give you all that in the notes. Get that on your own. Go ahead and read that on your own in the notes because I don't have time to go through all of that. Um, I will give you this. I'll give you the theme, and then I'll take you through the overview. The theme of the song is found in the very first few verses where the maiden, she says, draw me away and let us run together. Draw me away with you and let us run together. That is the first and second commandment. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Draw me away in love with you, and I want to run with you to love others, is the idea. This is the foundational thought in the entire song. It's the foundational thought of our Christian walk. It's I ask the Lord all the time, draw me away with you, take me away with you. And I remember it was about four years ago, I was shocked. I'd heard this song one other time, uh, but this song that I'd only heard maybe once, it was echoing in my mind. And I'd been praying, draw me away, draw me away, draw me away. And the song says, come away. Come away with me. Come away with me. Um, and it talks about I've got a you know I'm gonna I've got a plan for you. It's gonna be wild. It's gonna be great. I mean, you know that song. It's a Jesus culture. I mean that song. I mean that song branded me so deeply because I knew it was an answer to my prayer of draw me away. I knew the Lord was speaking to me. Come away. And so the Lord is always answering the draw me away prayer with come away, come away. Now, you know what? It's super hard to do. It's super hard to come away with the Lord when you're checking your phone every five minutes. It's super hard to come away with the Lord when every other thing has your attention and your affections. Some of you right now, your affections are so wrapped up in other things, false attractions, that you need a moment in your life, you need a season right now to unhook your affections from other things so you can say, draw me away, and you can actually hear the come away. And some of us, we, we don't ever sense the come away with me because we are we're saying, draw me away, touch me, God, draw me away, and then we are going and running after other things really as fast as we can. Sometimes we need to clear the slate of other attractions. Some of them are not even bad. I'm not saying like sinful things. I'm just saying things that have your attention, things that take your affections. I, I love football. I'm a Georgia Bulldog fan. I am a dog through and through. I read the message boards. I comment. I say things. I actually, I'm really nice on my burner accounts. But here's my point. Uh, there's been seasons in my life where 
football has had my affections in a way that God did not. And I said, Lord, I'm, I'm going to put that down. I'm going to put that down because I don't want these things to have my affections more than you. And, and those are hard decisions we have to make sometimes to clear the traffic in our soul. Just, I don't, you don't need to raise your hand, but do you have soul, traffic in your soul? Are you putting traffic in your soul that you don't need? Is it hard for you to, to be drawn away with, with the Lord in a place of intimacy and, and quiet and, and his affections? Is that difficult for you? If that's difficult for you to be drawn away, if it's difficult for you to come away with him, you need to get rid of the traffic in your soul. Amen. Man, I'm preaching so good right now. Y'all are like... <laughs> So I'm not saying forever. I'm just saying until your affections can connect to him the way his affections are connected to you. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Okay. All right. Here, let's go through the overview of the song. All right. We got three key players. Three key players. There's more than three in the song, but there's three key. We have the Shulamite. That's the bride or the maiden. That's us. We have the beloved or the bridegroom. That's Jesus. And then we have the daughters of Jerusalem, and they are the onlookers. They're the sort of the peanut gallery. They're sort of the ones that are watching this whole thing play out. Some commentators think of the daughters of Jerusalem as sort of the nominal believers, whereas the bride represents a, a different version of that, maybe someone that's entered into holy, passionate love. I don't love that one, but let's just say that. They're sort of these bystanders. All right, so here's where the story starts. Song of Solomon 1.5, she says, I am dark but lovely. We talked about this a little bit last week. But here's where it starts off. The maiden is in a spiritual crisis. She is in a moment and a time of burnout. She goes on to explain, she says, I've been a keeper of my brother's vineyards, but I haven't taken care of my own. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes we get strung out on other attentions, and, and sometimes it's affections that we put ourselves to, or sometimes it's just other works that we put ourselves to, and we don't take care of our own vineyard, the vineyard of our own heart. And I can't tell you, 30 years of ministry, I cannot tell you how many times I've met believers, and they come dragging in and they're like, I'm so burned out. I'm so worn out. I'm so just beat up in ministry and all this stuff. And what it, the reason why that happens is because they end up putting the second commandment first. And what they do is they love others with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then secondarily, they love God. If you have this first and second commandment backwards, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself, if you have those backwards where you're loving your neighbor with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and sort of loving God with the leftovers, you will be bruised, burned out, and broken. You will, you will find yourself worn out. You have to tend your own garden first. Okay, so so many believers... They get going in God. They start off fully alive, buoyant in heart, so filled with the affections of God, so excited. And they get running in ministry, and they, they end up working for God instead of with Him. 
And they end up leaving the God of the ministry to do the ministry for God. And I cannot tell you how many times I've met people who are burned out on church life, on ministry life, because they've forgotten their love relationship with God. Guys, listen, the story from the beginning to the end, not just Song of Solomon, the story of your life from the beginning to the end, it is a love story. It is a rescue and a love story. And when the story has become anything but a love story for you, when the story between you and God has become anything but a love story, I'm telling you, you are off the path. You don't know what the story is. It is a love story through and through from beginning to end. So she's in this place of crisis. She hasn't taken care of herself. Her, her, her brothers have forced her to work in a way that's caused her to be completely burned out. And she's in this place of spiritual crisis. But here's what's interesting is the, the beloved, the bridegroom, he sees her in that state and he recognizes she's actually beautiful. I know she looks like a wreck, but she's actually beautiful in heart. And I don't care how wrecked and jacked up your life has been, how much you've been wrecked and jacked up. You might be wrecked and jacked up right now. He is not looking at you and saying, you're so ugly. He's looking at you and saying, I see the beauty of who you are. I see the budding virtues of your heart. If you have any level of a yes on the inside towards Jesus, that yes to him, he says, I see who you are on the inside, and you are beautiful to me. That's how he looks at you. So here's what happens. He begins to encounter her, and he begins to tell her how beautiful she is to him, and all of a sudden, she begins to believe it. And so he begins to bear his heart towards her. So here you have this burnt out, broken person who has no connection to the truth of who they are on the inside, but he's speaking it over her. And all of a sudden, in his words, calling her into her identity, she begins to just a little bit, she begins to believe it. And here's in verse 15 of chapter 1. This is such a powerful verse. I read it last week, and I talked about how he sees us and says that we're faithful. And I talked about doves' eyes and how doves are monogamous, and they actually have, they have vision that just only goes one direction. They only look one way. So to say doves' eyes, it's this, this uh, you have a, a, a vision that is set and fixed on him. But I want you to read this, verse 15, Song of Solomon 1. Look at this. Here's what he says to her. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Behold, in other words, whoa, wow. You are beautiful, my love. You are beautiful, my love, I want to tell you something. 84 times in the book of Song of Solomon, he speaks. Never once does he speak negatively to her. Not once. Every time he speaks to her, he says either you are beautiful, you are my love, or you are beautiful, my love. 
every time. How does God speak to you? When he talks to you, what filter are you hearing him through? Are you hearing him say to you, you are beautiful. I love you. Because if you're hearing some other lens, that's not his voice. Even when he's bringing correction, he's still calling you into your identity. He's never shaming you. You know how I know? Because he doesn't have any shame in him. He doesn't use shame. When he's bringing conviction, he says things like, where are you, Adam? <laughs> he doesn't go, Adam, how dare you? You idiot. You ate the apple. You're stupid. I hate you. He's like, this is not God. That's the voice of the accuser of the brethren. He goes, Adam, I love you. You're beautiful, son. Where are you? Whenever God speaks, whenever we see the bridegroom speaking to the maiden in Song of Solomon, it's always, you look good and I like you. You're beautiful, my love. You look good and I like you. Do you hear God through that lens? Because if you don't, I would, I would propose to you, you're hearing him through a lens of your experience and another voice. It's clouding the way God is speaking to you. Am I making sense? So here she is. She begins to start coming alive. And in, in verse 16, this is where our love for him explodes. When you begin to hear his love toward you, his delight in you, and the fact that he's calling you beautiful, she responds with, you are handsome, my beloved. You're beautiful. I love you. Listen, you can't muster up telling Jesus he's beautiful. I mean, you can go through the motions, but the only way that you can really say it to him and, it, and it's real is if you hear him saying it to you because it comes out of that. It comes out of him telling you, you're beautiful. You look good. I love you. You go, you're handsome. I love you. All right. So she goes through this place of experiencing his love. By chapter 2, she's under the shade tree with him, experiencing the beauty of love. She goes, I don't ever want to leave this place. She goes, sustain me and refresh me. She goes, I want to stay in this place, and then I want you to continue to make it real. I want to be sustained and refreshed, sustained and refreshed. Your, your banner over me, everything is love. And what he's doing is he's wooing her heart. You've been through these seasons in your life where you felt like God was wooing you. He continued to speak to you. He continued to draw you. You closed your eyes to pray, and it was like whoosh. You came to church and worship, whoosh. Every single time you open your Bible, you're like, what? Everything, every Bible roulette, you're like, no, he's speaking right to me. I mean, every time. This is Song of Solomon 2. She's encountering the love of him in such a rich and real way. So here's what happens. The scene changes in verse 8. And now he comes to her, and he has changed 
what he looks like. He's showing her a different facet of who he is. He first was showing her himself as the beautiful bridegroom. Now he's showing her himself as the conquering king. And so here he comes, and in in verse 8, he comes leaping and skipping on the mountains, on the hills. That represents spiritual trials and challenges, the hills and challenges of your life. He comes in strong and powerful, and, and she is behind and in this She's in this enclosure in this house. She's behind a lattice, and he's out in the world, and he's looking there at her. He goes, listen, listen, come away. And she's going, I don't even know who you are. I want some shade tree. He goes, we're going to mountains. The winter is past. The rain is over. It is time for conquest. Me and you, we're going to run together. He goes, remember one chapter ago, you were praying, draw me away and let us run together? He goes, let's run mountains together. We're going to trample on mountains. We're going to trample on all the activity of the enemy. We're going to go into battle together, me and you, beloved. And she looks at him, and at the end of chapter 2, she says this. She goes, he is mine and I am his. Notice Notice the... The order, she goes, he is mine first, and I am his second. She goes, but uh, tell you what, turn away my beloved. She goes, you go ahead and be like a gazelle. You go do the trampling on the mountains and skipping on the hills. I can't. She goes, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. She's saying, see, there's still darkness in me. I need the sun to shine and all the gray areas to go away. What's interesting is he's calling her to the mountains, and he already knows that she's not perfect. You ever been shocked that God used you and you're you? You're like, wait a minute. Was that me or was that him? It had to be him, but dang, he's using. And then, you know, then you get a little arrogant. You're like, ha, 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 I'm anointed. (laughs) Ha. And he's like, no, no, I use people with gray areas. I'm, I'm, I'm causing you to become mature in love. So she says, you go to the mountains. In fact, she goes, go to the mountain of Bether. Now, that's a word you use all the time, the mountain of Bether. Bether means, anybody? Separation. She goes, you go, I'll stay. All right, so then we get to chapter 3, and here's what she says. By night on my bed, I sought the one I loved, but I couldn't find him. So she's looking for him in a familiar place of intimacy, and he's not there. Why isn't he there? He's up on the mountain. And she has actually disobeyed his invitation to come, and now she's feeling the sting of what it's like to be without him. Have you ever felt that sting? He goes, come on, let's go together. We're going to do the thing. Come on, come on, come on, come on. And you knew the Lord was urging you. It could have been something simple. He was urging you to go to gatekeepers on Thursday night, and you went and did something else. And when you went to the other thing, it just stunk because gatekeepers were bomb. And he wasn't there. He was here. Or maybe it was something else. He was inviting you to come with him, and you zagged when you should have zigged, and you found yourself in that zig place going, what have I done? 
I don't feel you here. And what happens to her is this. She goes running out in the night. She starts grabbing anybody. Have you seen the one I love? Have you seen the one I love? And then she says, he passed by me. And as soon as he passed by me, I grabbed a hold of him, and I wouldn't let him go. See, those moments in disobedience, when we feel that separation, it's not that God is trying to be mean. It's not that he's trying to, like, teach you a lesson. That, this whole doctrine that God teaches you a lesson in some sort of a mean way, that is a false thing. What he's doing is he's letting you experience the, the pain of distance. And when you're experiencing that pain of distance, the answer is repent and run after him. And so she goes running after him, and when she finds him, she would not let him go. That's a little season of discipline because of her disobedience, and it works exactly what it's supposed to work. She doesn't ever want to do that again. All right, end of chapter 3, we see him come. He comes this time in these chariots, and now he's showing her, listen, I'm still safe. Even though we've been through this moment of separation, I'm still safe. I'm still here. I'm still focused on the wedding. All right, chapter 4, here's what happens. She hasn't ever even gone to the mountains yet, but he starts lavishing her with all this love, all these words of affirmation. And he says this, and this is the absolute turning point of the whole book. Verse 9, he says, You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eye. Now, here's what I want you to understand. She hasn't even obeyed yet. She's just said yes. And he looks at her and he says, just one glimpse, one glance from you, my heart is overwhelmed. And I would venture to say there's not one of us in this room who have any concept of this truth that God, how deeply God is moved by our love. God is moved by your love. And he's going to turn around and he's going to say to her, where she was saying to him, your love is better than wine, he's going to say to her, your love is better than wine. All the things that bring me pleasure, he goes, your love is the best. Did you know that's how God thinks? All the things that pleasure and bring pleasure to the heart of God, your love is better than wine. So by the end of that, she hears that. She is blown away. Verse 16, massive turning point in the book. She goes, come on, north winds, come on, south. Blow on my garden. I don't care what happens. She goes, the north winds or the south winds, I don't care what blows on my life. If it's nice and warm, if it's cold and frigid, if it's easy and blessing and our hardship, I don't care. She goes, let every wind blow on me and let the spices of my heart come out. Let it please my beloved. She goes, I want to be pleasing to him no matter what comes. And that gets us to chapter 5. And chapter 5 is another time of separation. Chapter 3, she was in disobedience. Chapter 5, she's like, I don't care what happens. Bring it all on. I want to be with him. And so he, he shows up again. He knocks at the door. She opens up. She goes, I can't wait to be with you. And when she opens the door, she hears his voice calling her into the night. She goes into the night, but she can't find him. So she finds herself in the night 
can't see him, can't hear him, can't feel him. She's lost. And this time, instead of when she's asking people, where did he go? She goes and finds the watchmen who are even spiritual leaders in the book. They represent spiritual leaders. And they beat her up. And in the whole transaction, what's wild is, in chapter 1, she goes, I don't want to keep this veil on me where I can't see you. She gets beat up. She's in the night, can't hear him, can't see him. She doesn't know where he's at, but she loses her veil. It takes away her veil so she, she can begin to see him more clearly. And then here's what happens. She says, daughters of Jerusalem, have you seen my beloved? Do you know where he's at? And they go, why do you like him? Who is he? What is he more than another? And in, in verse 10 to verse 16, it is the most powerful explanation, I think, in all the scripture of the beauty of God, the beauty of Jesus. And it comes from the bride in the midst of suffering. You've been through seasons of suffering, and you didn't know why, and we will spend a whole week on this. And you wondered where he was. Why isn't he there? Why don't you feel him the way you did before? And you didn't realize that that season of suffering was geared to bring you into revelation of him that you never had before. All right, by chapter 6, she finds him. She returns. He returns. She finds him. And he says, you are beautiful like an army with banners. He goes, you're beautiful like a victorious army. And then he says this phrase to her. He goes, he goes turn your eyes from me because you've overwhelmed me. You've overcome me. And he begins to vindicate her, and he begins to speak life over her and call her into her identity. And by the end of chapter 6, she says this. She goes, before I was even aware, my soul set me over my people. In, the, in other words, she finds herself in a place of maturity and love with him and in leadership in the church. She didn't go for leadership. She went for him, and it ended up putting her in spiritual authority and maturity and love. By chapter 7, there's these naysayers, these voices that are accusing her, and he stands up and he speaks and justifies her and vindicates her. And then by the end of chapter 7, she goes, come, my beloved, let's go to the field. <laughs> chapter 2, he was saying, hey, let's go to the field, let's go to the mountains. By the end of 7, she goes, I'm ready, let's go. Chapter 8, this is the end of the story. They have this picture of her coming with him. Verse 5, and it says, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? By the end of the book, she's so transformed, they can't even tell who she is anymore. Who is this leaning on her beloved? Listen, guys, all of us are on a journey with Jesus through different seasons of our lives, we experience him with different, he comes to us with a, a different um, image of himself. Some seasons he shows up as this safe savior. Some seasons he shows up as this, this bridegroom who's ravished in love. Some seasons he shows up as this conquering king. 
in every season. Some seasons he invites us into suffering with him. In every season, every season of your life, he is working to bring you to a place of maturity in love. Hear me. The voices of accusation are rising against you. He's allowing that because he's trying to bring you into maturity and love. You're going through difficulty and suffering. He's allowing that because he's bringing you to maturity and love. There's seasons of distance sometimes when you've been in disobedience. It's not that he hates you. He's trying to get you to maturity and love. When you begin to see your life through the lens of the story of the song, all of a sudden, your seasons begin to make sense like they never have before. It is a massive, massive shift in our souls. Amen. All right, let's stand. There's discussion questions in the notes, but here's what I want to do tonight. I just want to pray, and we'll, we'll be done. And, and Val, or just keyboard, if we just get a little just keyboard music. I just want to pray right now. I want to ask the Holy Spirit to release revelation of the song on our lives, on our hearts. So just right now, just you and the Lord, you'd say, I want that. I want revelation of the song. I want to encounter Jesus in the song. He answers these little prayers. Just put your hand on your heart even right now. He answers these little sincere prayers. Lord, we're standing before you right now. And we confess we haven't understood the seasons of our journey with you. But we want to understand how you've been working in our lives, even when we didn't understand and couldn't see. So, Lord, I pray right now every person that has their hand on their heart, release the spirit of revelation in Song of Solomon. Release that to every heart. Kiss us with the kisses of your word. Open the eyes of our understanding. And Lord, I pray for these next six weeks as we go deep into this love song, that you would unlock us in intimacy. That we would hear your voice saying, you look good, I like you. You are beautiful, my love. You are all fair, my love. Let that resound inside of us. Let every false voice, every filter that's drowning out the sound of your affections. Let it evaporate and transform us, God. So even tonight, I pray for dreams. I pray for encounters. Lord, in the weeks ahead, I pray for revelation. So come, Holy Spirit. Unlock us. We want to know love. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at GatekeepersATL. 
We'll see you in the next message.